0: I have been searching Welcome to Following the Fire, a podcast for Christians who are rethinking their faith and need a safe place to doubt. As we wander through the spiritual wilderness, we want to find and follow God wherever the pillar of fire leads. And just like God's people in the Bible, we get lost, we miss the point, and
1: we don't have all the answers. But maybe that's okay. We're on this journey together. I'm
0: Nathan And I'm Steve.
1: But even on
0: my heart Can't compare with what you're worth
1: Hey everybody, welcome to another Following the Fire book club. I love all of these, but I'm extra especially stoked. Uh, We're going to be talking about Heavy Burdens by Bridget Eileen Rivera. And we have her here. uh, Really excited to talk about the book. And we'll get into that a little bit later. But we have Bridget here. Uh, Bridget, say hello. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
2: Hi. Yeah. So my name is Bridget Eileen Rivera, and I uh, am the author of Heavy Burdens. And I do a lot of advocacy for LGBTQ people in the church. I uh, grew up in conservative evangelicalism in the homeschool movement specifically. Um, And so I, I guess making Christian communities a healthy place for LGBTQ people to grow up in is something that's really important to me that's very near and dear to my heart. I'm currently getting my PhD um, in sociology and uh, teaching uh, college-level classes in sociology here in New York, and I generally am I guess excited to talk with you guys today about um, LGBTQ stuff and making the church a better place.
1: Thank you so much. Uh, Really honored to have you on. How, how close to the end of the doctorate? Should we just pre call you Dr. Rivera?
2: No, no. (laughs) not yet. Not yet. So I wish. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Don't, don't jinx it. (laughs) All right. Sorry. Yeah. I actually am just now. Um, entering what's called level two basically i uh, need to complete my orals um Mm -hmm. which like once i complete my orals then i will be eligible to submit my dissertation proposal at which point i will be a doctoral candidate so i'll have reached candidacy so i'm like right before that stage right now and that's exciting yeah yeah trying to take it one step at a time and not get too overwhelmed.
0: <laughs> yeah. but, you, but you, I, you thought you'd just take a break and write an entire book along the way? or? <laughs> I did.
2: I did decide to write a whole book during my PhD. It was quite overwhelming, I have to say. I didn't quite know what I was getting myself into beforehand because this is my first book. And I yeah. think if I had known, I would not have done it. But you know what? Ignorance is bliss. <laughs> and the book got written. And I I am hmm. just grateful that I'm still alive. <laughs>
1: wow. Well, I'm extremely impressed. Um, I barely could write papers when I was going to school. And I was just a bachelor. So, um, Sounds like your advice to people who are thinking about writing a book is like, no, you don't know what you're getting into. You know? Um maybe that, that ignorance is a good thing. So, so the, I'll, I'll talk about the book, uh, real quick. It's heavy burdens. The, mm-hmm. the subtitle is seven ways LGBTQ Christians experience harm in the church out now, wherever books are sold. You can also get it at bakerpublishinggroup.com Also, by the way, um, Bridget, you're, you're on all the socials and you've got a blog as well, right?
2: Yes, I am um, on Twitter and Instagram as well as Facebook. My handle is Traveling Nun, and my blog is Meditations of a Traveling Nun. And I primarily use that as a space to um, engage with uh, current things happening in evangelical denominations around LGBTQ issues. Um, and to you know provide context and framing and um, hopefully better perspectives where perspective is lacking. So yeah, my blog, Meditations of a Traveling Nun. Um, so you can find me at all those places.
1: Awesome. All right. So the so this this book, Heavy Burdens. I I attended for a long time a church that that had a sign uh, that said this and that on the website said. Um, this. So I, I know there's a lot of people who who have similar experiences. Here's just one example. The statement that on my church's website said, we don't pretend to be perfect and we don't expect you to be either. We'd love it if you joined us for worship or to study God's word. Everyone is welcome. We'd love to get to know you. And when I look at that statement, I I just, uh, I'm filled with emotions because I, th- I think, man, what a great ideal to strive for. Mm-hmm. But I also wonder Man, what kind of a trap are we setting for for people who may walk through the doors and don't quite know what they're getting into in that group or kind of where the mm-hmm. where the people are? Yeah, and but but it's the root of it is is true. It's this ideal that many Christians really strive for, and I feel like this book is an attempt to help Christians and churches like mine to, to live up to that ideal that they have.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And at, you know at work at my job. I specifically have my job is to point out problems. My, our, our company encourages people who can find weaknesses that we have or blind spots because you can only get better if you can first see the problem and then take ownership of it. Uh, you know, acknowledge your faults. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, that's kind of where you have to start and to move yeah. on. So
2: true.
1: And so the, this, this book, it's, it's kind of hard though, when you talk about problems, I don't like that. Um mm-hmm. But, it's, it's writing from the inside and saying, here are some problems maybe that you haven't thought about um, mm-hmm. if you're part of the dominant culture. And it lays out um, seven really thoughtful and convicting and revealing burdens that Christians who want to live up to this ideal of everyone is welcome or who, who follow a, a Christ who is, you know, the savior of the downtrodden and who cares about the least of these, it points out some ways that, that the church maybe is actually accidentally not only not a refuge, but actually causing some harm mm-hmm. for the, the people among us who are LGBTQ, like our kids, but also just the world watching us, the, the people on the outside and a really convicting part of this book. You you talk about the the 99 and the one where, where Jesus um, makes it clear that, that, that who God cares about is that one lost sheep and that, that it really does matter how we, we as Christians, we as uh, Christ followers uh, treat the least of these, including that, that one sheep yeah, instead of the 99, the outsider sheep. I, I'm so thankful for this book. I really can't wait to, to talk more about it. And I would just encourage uh, Christians and, and churches and church leaders to take a look at this book take it seriously. It's filled with personal anecdotes, um, statistics, and scripture to to make a case for maybe a, a better way that we can serve, serve LGBTQ Christians in our midst.
2: And one thing I'll just add to that, because I know that a big thing with a lot of books on LGBTQ um, issues in Christianity is that Christians can often be hesitant to read them because they don't want to be led astray by what's often seen as liberal, progressive, leftist theology. And I know that's definitely been me um, in the past is, no, I can't read that because, you know, the enemy is going to use that to, like, tempt me to believe lies or, you know, something to that effect. And so one of the things that I really try to prioritize in the book is to not center like trying to convince people of one position or the other on same-sex marriage. Like whether you believe in same-sex marriage, whether you don't believe in same-sex marriage, I really tried to write a book that that is for both sides where it actually doesn't matter what you believe regardless of what you believe these things are nevertheless the reality these things are nevertheless things that need to be changed um and i think that's important because i I hope that that provides uh i guess an in an in for people to feel less scared because i'm not going to be trying to convince you to believe in same-sex marriage. And in fact, something that people uh, might not realize about me who are just getting to know me or maybe are not familiar with my work is that I actually myself have a traditional view of marriage. So I believe that marriage is defined in Scripture as between a man and a woman for the purpose of Procreation. Um, That is a um, doctrine that I follow, and something that I personally believe is very important um, in how I live my life. And as a result of that, I am celibate. And so, you know, I myself have a traditional perspective when it comes to uh, this topic. And I think that's important because I think a lot of people assume that when LGBTQ people are speaking on this topic, they're speaking from this very, like, leftist, raw, you know, tear down everything, and we're going to remake, like, all of the church into something else. And that's, you know, really not the, the case. LGBTQ people come from a spectrum of belief. On uh, theology, on marriage and sexuality, um some people uh, affirm same sex marriage, others don't. Uh, many are in a place of confusion and trying to figure it out and not knowing. and I think that's important because a lot of people don't realize that queer people in the church are in the same like place of trying to figure it out and you know not. A monolith in what their beliefs are, uh, which is not necessarily always appreciated.
0: Yeah, I I, I do appreciate how you approached the approach that in the book and made it made it accessible to folks on both sides of the aisle on that one, um, and how the th- the things that like the the seven burdens you you go through. Um, I mean, it's like it's like we. I feel like when we get into this topic. You're, I think it's kind of what you're saying. We get hung up on the marriage thing and it's, it goes no further. It's like, well, hold on. There are still people out there, regardless of their opinion on marriage, that are they're experiencing harm in the church. Mm-hmm. And let's talk about that. And yeah. Let's table the marriage thing or the sexual relationships thing for now. And let's talk about the fact that These are people that are loved by God and who love God and who Mm -hmm. are being harmed.
2: Yeah, exactly. And what I, what I often find with books of this nature is that, like you said, the focus is on theology and there will usually be a, like a, a part of the book where they kind of talk about how this, like it's important to remember the people the heart of this issue and that we have to be sensitive to their needs but it's always like a quick (laughs) aside like you know let's make this comment so that we can get back to the you know the theology the real meat and to me the heart of the issue is people um because you know that's ultimately the end game of this is the effect that um all of this has on how people Are following Jesus and um, what their lives are like. And I, I share this statistic at the start of my book. For most people, for actually the majority, I think actually all demographics measured in this particular study, for all demographics, they found that religious involvement reduces the risk of suicide Um, So the more heavily involved in your faith, the less likely you are to consider suicide and commit suicide. Um, And this was true for every demographic they measured, except for LGBTQ people. For LGBTQ (sighs) people, the more involved they were in their faith, the more seriously they took their faith, the more likely they were to not just consider suicide, the more likely they were to attempt suicide. Um, And the more likely they were to die by suicide, which is Mm. just astonishing that religious involvement would play a role in making all people's lives better, except for LGBTQ people, for whatever reason, religious involvement is pushing queer people to death. And that's that's startling. It's Yeah. yeah, it's extremely startling. And, um you know that to me is what Christians need to be grappling with why <laughs> Why is that yeah. the case? Why is that happening? we've got to figure it out uh, because people's lives are at stake
1: yeah and when when you think of you know it it should be intuitive, but why is is that a problem for Christians to consider and I think it goes without saying that we we are maybe fostering an environment that does that, but any problem that you have to deal with alone or that is unmentionable or that is full of shame. You can't tell your wife or you can't, you know, you can't say it out loud, like any problem that people struggle with. The first thing you're supposed to do is share it and get a community around you to help you with your alcoholism or with your, you know, depression or with your uh, chronic disease or whatever it is you. And it's the people who, who bottle it up and, and have that deep, deep, deep shame Mm -hmm. so deep that they can't say mom can you help me Mm -hmm. those are the people fighting on their own and Mm -hmm. I think that you know speaking of unmentionable problems I grew up kind of thinking and maybe my my culture or my my church accidentally kind of assumed the same thing I think which is that like gay people are out there like gay people are who you see in like pride parades and they're they live in you know new york city and amsterdam mm-hmm. and they <laughs> yeah. uh you know they look like this and you know it, it's like it may as well be uh, an alien species like it's so it's like not even us and them it's like i can't even imagine that and i th- i think that a starting point for us is acknowledging or even asking the question like what if there are maybe some gay people in this building
2: Mm hmm.
1: Or like, what if my what if what if my kid or what if, you know, like who in my youth group that I grew up with was struggling with this and I made jokes about it or I talked like, yeah, they're all outsiders with an agenda, you know. Mm-hmm. Um. So how many churches do you think like need to reckon with this because of the people inside the building who we don't know that we're talking about?
2: Um. all everyone. There is not a church in existence unless, like, the church is, like, four people and, like, (laughs) the likelihood is low. A church with an average number of members, there's not a single one that does not have queer people in the congregation. Um, They are there. They are present. And you uh, have spoken to them. They might be your friend. Yeah, they might be uh, your child. They might be your spouse. Um, they might be uh, your elder or a deacon. or And it's not just, there won't just be one hiding there. <laughs> It'll be <laughs> many. There You will have many queer people in the congregation. And in most conservative churches, um, these people will never come out. Uh, why? Because the social cost is so high in these communities. And so um, it 100% is a very isolating experience. It's something that many will just keep to themselves, hide at all costs, never tell a single soul. And as a result of keeping this very secret, they keep themselves very secret. Because in order to hide this part of yourself, you have to hide everything about yourself otherwise people will figure it out (laughs) so Mm. you have to like put on an act all the time and you know be behaving a certain way and you know um you know masking your speech and um being careful you know not to sound a certain way not to look a certain way to dress the right way and you know it becomes extremely, extremely overwhelming, very isolating, and it it builds up over time and is is very difficult in terms of you know very difficult emotionally, very heavy cost in terms of mental health um, and this is one of of many reasons why um, the mental health outcomes for queer people that are heavily involved in religious communities is so poor because there is such a heavy cost to being queer in a conservative evangelical church.
1: The rain is falling hard on this dusty ground
0: And I got no way of knowing what will grow you talk in the book uh directly and indirectly about the double standards of holiness and forgiveness and all the all these aspects of that straight people just think it's just how things are but mm-hmm. then it comes to suddenly oh you're gay well suddenly i have a different set of rules for you mm-hmm. can you talk about that and how that how that impacts things
2: yeah yeah a, a big a big way that that plays out is when it comes to uh, questions about sexuality, straight people are really allowed a lot of space in churches to ask questions, to figure things out, to explore. Even if you're a straight guy who struggles with porn, it's largely seen as totally normal um, and like you go to like a men's group, a men's support group where you can like talk about it. And, you know, share, you know, help, help, help each other, share support with each other. If, you know, like nobody thinks this is a
0: good thing, but they're not, they're not surprised that it's happening because
2: it's, you don't get kicked out. out. (laughs) You don't get kicked out over it. And, um, you know, if someone's trying to figure out what they believe about divorce and remarriage, you know, is it okay? Is it not okay? Is it one of those things that's bad, but God forgives it? Like, these are questions that are allowed. For the most part, um, straight people in evangelical churches are allowed to ask questions. They're allowed to figure things out. They're allowed to struggle. All of these things are considered okay, considered normal, an expected part of the of your walk with Christ as you're growing mm-hmm. in the process of sanctification. This is part of it. But for queer people there's no room for that whatsoever. You have to toe the line. There are no questions that can be asked. There is no thing that can be struggled with. There is nothing that you could uh, explore or figure out along the way. Um, There is no room for differences of opinion. It's this way or the highway. It's you believe what the pastor says, or you are kicked out of the church, you're not a member anymore, because you're, you're living in sin. And in fact, maybe you're not even a Christian anymore. And, you know, there's so many stories, uh, people that I know, personally, friends who um, have just been through absolutely humiliating things in churches where they were picked out from the pulpit in the congregation um, and made to stand up in front of the entire congregation and confess that they were queer and living in sin. Um, People who were escorted out of the church um, upon um, speaking to an elder about some of the questions that they had. And the thing is about this, people hear stories like this, and they think... How can this be? This is so shocking. And the fact is is that this goes on In this is characteristic of Mm. the situation in evangelical churches. It's not an exception. It doesn't just happen in one or two places here and there. But like your church is a really good church. This would never happen there. In fact, it might... And probably has happened there already. (laughs) Yeah, this is a characteristic of how things are. I've, you know, had friends that have even like, upon um, discussing some of their struggles in a men's group, um, a week later, gotten death threats in the mail that were anonymous, so nobody knows who it was. But and so, like, these things are going on happening all the time. It is not just an exception. It is characteristic. I do not have a single queer friend who does not have multiple traumatic stories to tell from their time in various churches, not a single one. And you kind you have to really go hunting to find someone wow. <laughs> that doesn't have a negative experience. And more often than not, there's someone who came to faith later in life, and so they didn't have time <laughs> to have a negative experience. And yeah, this is when when we talk about changing things, this is the type of stuff that needs to be changed. and it's it's more than just you know people learning to not be homophobic anymore. Um, it's it's coming to a place where we can see, that there are specific things that are being taught in churches, there are specific ways of thinking and mindsets that are being inculcated in the culture and in the way people think about the world that are producing this type of atmosphere. It's not just about you deciding that you're going to be okay with queer people and you're going to love them, this is, this is a culture that exists. This is an atmosphere that exists. And it, and it exists because of things that are being taught, mindsets that are entrenched in people um, that need to be changed, that need to be shifted. Otherwise, things will not change.
1: I love how you, you say marginalized cultures get scrutiny, extra scrutiny, Mm-hmm. Spend all their we spend all the, our time scrutinizing marginalized cultures, and the dominant culture goes unexamined. Yeah, and mm. it's so th- like that's such a great nugget of wisdom, but it is so hard to see when that is happening, especially uh-huh. if you're in the dominant culture. And mm-hmm. I I truly believe that we actually need the benefit of people who are not in the. Dominant culture: the burden is that its life sucks for a long time because they're Mm -hmm. they're feeling that tension of man. I'm not in the mainstream of whatever it is. It you know this can be a a number of things, right? If you speak a different language or if you came from a different state or or Mm -hmm. whatever, you're you're going to notice the things the dominant culture is doing that the dominant culture cannot notice about itself. Just Mm -hmm. you can't you're you're all the fish go in the same direction it's it's it takes a fish that's going a different direction to even like notice it and i yeah. i feel like th- the importance of that cannot be overstated because it is our it is precisely our unexamined state that has caused this culture to be allowed to right because our, our churches we want to be like Christ and we we even believe that Christ has the answer for X for for whatever the thing is, right? hmm Um yeah. that there's a, a life, an abundant life waiting for that person.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And what we don't see is that we are closing all of the gates to, uh, that would even give them a, a chance to uh to get there. Um I I went to a, a Bible Belt Church of Christ affiliated college. And it's so funny because I was in the you know, I was Their core demographic, I was like, you know, definitely mainstream all the way down the middle. And when I look back, things that I didn't notice, but that I know in retrospect are that I had, you know, a dozen LGBTQ friends while I was going there who were in various stages of struggling with their families or with um, themselves or with um, the school, which would kick them out if they found out, Mm -hmm. including... Right, uh two of two of my uh suite mates got kicked out, you know, freshman or sophomore year. Wow. Um, out of the school. That's um horrible. and so you, you look at that and then maybe a couple gets pregnant, right? And mm-hmm. and you'd see you'd see maybe that the guy gets to keep going to school. Mm-hmm. Um and maybe the girl drops out or gets kicked out. Yeah. And so you it's kind of an example of like, wait a minute, where you know, where are we pointing our focus? Mm-hmm. And as I as I exited that, that system, I had been surrounded by what I thought were a lot of straight, Christian, 99.99% white, you know, people exactly like me. And like a neighborhood away, I started working at a restaurant where I was the only straight person.
0: <laughs> That's and, great.
1: <laughs> and so suddenly I, I was a minority. I had a Chris, you know, I, I got that job by desperately like walking place to place and handing out resumes and my resume says x christian university on it you know Mm -hmm. so like people know wherever i go that i've got some kind of affiliation with christianity and man the at first i thought everybody hated me i didn't i didn't quite know what was going on but man i was getting a like all of this like scorn feeling Mm -hmm. and it it took a couple of weeks for, for me to realize like these people all have strong defenses up because I came in and now they know that they've got one of these people that they're literally having trauma responses. It it turns out. And, and after, a you know, you work with me for two or three weeks and then p- people feel pretty safe and, you know, start making fun of me and stuff. Um,
0: <laughs>
1: and, and each one of them, because this was the Bible belt, every single one of them had a, a painful, painful story about their uh, families or their hometowns or where they came from. And they were all Christian. They, they all had grown up Christian Their their pain and their kind of that initial reaction they had against me was they were expecting this culture of like whatever that, that is to continue in a place that they kind of thought was a, a safe space. I'm all that to say, this is why I think this book is so important um, because we really do um, miss some of the things we're doing on accident. We're, we're well-meaning people, but this is happening because of what we're not doing, because of what we're kind of, because we're not turning and facing this.
2: Yeah. and I, Yeah. So true. I feel
1: like there's a practical approach that we apply to heterosexual sin or to heterosexual you know um complicated relationships and and we'll will kind of apply them unequally to people who are straight um mm-hmm. than we do to people who are gay yeah and i think it starts with like the desire to stop actively harming these people you know that that we're accidentally harming
2: yeah 100% and um I think a lot of that has to do with um taking time to sit back and learn because I think there can be sometimes a mindset of we know what harm what the harm is that we're doing and so therefore we can just stop doing it but the yeah. the thing is is that Christians by and large don't know <laughs> That's why the harm is happening um you know it would take a really sadistic person to like know the harm that they're doing and continue doing it <laughs> yeah, and right. most Christians in most churches are not bad people. they're well intentioned, they love Jesus, they want to do what's right, they love people, like you know we're not talking about you know anyone who's intentionally harming others. Um, the harm that's being done is not understood. It's, it's invisible to people. They don't realize what they're doing. They don't know what the harms are. Um, and so when people hear that they, you know, need to, you know, be more welcoming, um, create a, a healthier atmosphere for LGBTQ people, a lot of times the response is, oh, okay, And immediately they're like on their guard for the next gay person to come in so they can be ultra loving and like ultra nice to them and ultra welcoming. Um, And like, I mean, maybe that's good. At the same time, it can be a little awkward. And at the end of the day, that doesn't actually fix the actual things that are going on, the actual issues that are causing the harm. Again, because people don't know. Um, It's something that people are ignorant of and that's why it's happening. And so, you know, it takes a lot of humility to step back and be like, okay, I don't understand this. This is something that I'm ignorant about. I need to step back and I need to learn so that I can move forward without harming other people. Please don't
0: turn away. Please don't hide your face. Yeah, I've been uh, like multiple generations back in my family, part of the Church of Christ, uh, churches of Christ, however you want to call it. And you know, I've got my degree from a Bible uh, Bible college, in Bible, trained as a missionary. I was a missionary in Germany, all this stuff. I assume that I know what's going on with people. And I assume that I know the harm, like you said, the harm that I'm doing or not doing or whatever. And we just, there's so much assumption. That I think, I feel like we just need to start with humility that I don't know what's going on. And in, in the life of uh, an LGBTQ person, um, I don't know what the, what they're experiencing, and that that's one reason. I, honestly, I like how you even just name the book. Like these are burdens that we're putting on people, because I I, I think you're right. And Christians don't want to be hateful. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't want to be suppressing, but I it it happens because mm-hmm. we don't pay attention. We're not asking questions like of of you, you know, like we're not asking questions about like, what, what am I doing that it's messing things up? And with, in my personal life, I, um, you know, we mentioned before we started recording about how churches of Christ generally do not have women participating in anything in the any leadership positions or anything in worship, et cetera. And I was the head of worship for years at our congregation. And my wife was the head of the children's education. And I didn't even put together the, the harm that was being done to her just by the passive not allowing her to be in do things in church. And so I, I I'm glad for voices like yours that are kind of showing here's what's going on. Like pull back the curtain a bit. And I've I I've talked to some people about this general topic in the recent past, and it seems like some people's initial response is to want to be like they want to be passive. Mm-hmm. So in In some ways, it's like, so okay, we get these problems, so let's just stop doing those bad things, mm-hmm. but inactivity is not the same as changing yeah. hearts and minds and changing the way things work mm-hmm. um so uh, I guess i i'm not i I thought I had a question in there, but <laughs> other than like how do we fix it, Bridget,
2: <laughs> other yeah. than like read your book,
0: you know it's like. <laughs> Like step one, you know, knowing is half the battle, right? But, mm-hmm.
2: um, and you know, I, I do try to, uh, kind of outline some steps, kind of point a path towards change in my book, um, yeah. specifically in the final section, um, where I, uh, I kind of present some broader principles that need to be laid down first, like some foundational things that can then be built upon. Um, And, you know, we don't have time to go into them all, but um, I think to speak to that, I think a lot of people feel like it's impossible to create that kind of church because their theology is just incompatible with, what LGBTQ people want. And I I just don't think that's true and I have heard from a number of LGBTQ people that attend conservative churches that have told me that they love their church, that it's their family and that they have found it to be incredibly life-giving for them mm. and that they are grateful to have found it because they themselves have a conservative theology. And it's extremely difficult to find that kind of church that is also a safe place to grow in your faith when you're a queer person. And those churches right now are few and far between, but they exist. And so uh, I think 100% to what you said, you can't take a passive approach to this. You have to be active. Um, And there are a number of groups that, you know, provide training on this, that, you know, provide resources to make this happen. Um and so, you know, it it takes um stepping forward, um taking initiative um to bring change because if you just sit back, nothing's going to change. It's just going to continue the way it is. I mean, you know, mm. the law of inertia. Um Yeah. <laughs> your church is going to keep on going the way it's been going unless you you know, put the brakes on and turn in a different direction and go that way instead.
1: I think, again, that I'm so thankful for the first, you know, the 80% of the book. The first part is just helping to give people who may not have experienced it themselves or may be blind to it, that ability to empathize a little bit and to kind of see, see the dominant culture from the outside. And something that really stood out to me when you move towards, you know, what would a welcoming you know christ-centered place look like that doesn't cause this harm you know like is there is there a life that you know is there something in christ that is that is for these people right and because our we believe all theologically yes yes there is (laughs) um how can we get to that and it it reminds me actually of my my personal story i found myself uh pregnant right i got someone pregnant I was not in a relationship. I kind of was barely going to church. And um, so I had to approach a community with this shame that I had and knowing kind of what the, you know, what my family was going to think and what my, um, all all these people, I knew, I knew what the right thing was and what the wrong thing was. Right. And there were kind of two reactions that, that I remember specifically to when I started asking for help. One started with, have you repented? Mm -hmm. Um, and I didn't really think much of it. And I, the answer I said was yes. But in reality, I was like straight in the middle of this really difficult, hard part of my life, you know, like, have you repented? It was kind of a meaningless question for me, but it was in retrospect, kind of the price of admission to the next part, which was like, yeah, here's what we're going to do. It was kind of a gate, like, well, you've got to fix this and then, and then you're kind of allowed back. And that some, sometimes that kind of stuff rules and, and and barriers or laws or tough love can help people. I think, you know, I, I don't know what would have helped me at that time, but what I remember just broke me was when someone said, uh, Hey, when you, when you fall again and you probably will get back up, we're here for you. Um, it, it was, it did not make my like current moral state, the price of admission, it was like, Hey, mm-hmm. we're here, you know, mm-hmm. we're here. We're a family, we support you. And I, it's, that's hard enough already for there are families who, you know, hide that their daughter got pregnant from their church because, mm-hmm. because of the shame associated with that, that we would benefit from, you know, fixing, you know, and, and letting mm-hmm. people. Um, But when we think about, okay, the next, I'm an elder, I'm a, a pastor, I'm a deacon and someone comes to me with this thing. Are we, are we willing to, to like sit with them, you know, like how ha- how can we support uh, Christians who subscribe to a like who who want to live a life of celibacy,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right? Do, do we have structures to if mm. if we have extremely conservative um, theology, are we willing to also back that up and and help those people, right? If we say you can't remarry to a divorced couple, would we help out the you know, the two people or, you know, how do we, how do we support these people and not
0: just ask them to live? Yeah, What would that look like? Yeah, exactly. You talk about in the book about, about creating that community to support. Yeah. What, what would that look like for, for folks who haven't read it yet?
2: Yeah. Well, I think before building a community that is supportive of celibacy there's kind of a prerequisite to that, which is making and allowing celibacy to be a choice that a queer person is able to make. Um, Because what happens in a lot of Christian communities is in order to be a part of the community, you have to be celibate. Um, And if you're not celibate, then you have no chance of being a part of the community. And so the first step is getting rid of this idea that celibacy is the, uh, I guess, the entrance fee, if you will, to being part of Christian community, because it's not the entrance fee for um, being a child of God. Um, You know, uh, we don't, save ourselves by um, how sexually pure we are. You know, we are saved through the grace of God, through faith in Jesus Christ. And when we create this situation where queer people need to be celibate in order to be a part of Christian community, we are putting upon them a different gospel than the gospel that we ourselves embrace for ourselves. And so um, that's the first thing um, when it comes to having a community where um, celibate queer people can find life is giving them the freedom to uh, come to a choice that you might disagree with um, because it's only by realizing that you can't lose the community that you have that Your choice to be celibate is a product of freedom now um, instead of bondage. And, you know, this is just a basic principle of psychology. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, when you force people to think a certain way, people are more likely to reject that mindset. (laughs) When you give people the choice and the ability to think for themselves, people are way more likely to pick a choice that you actually agree with. Um, and so, you know, people, you know, hear the idea like, oh my gosh, we have to give gay people the the freedom to, you know, read the Bible and decide their theology for themselves and decide whether or not they think they need to be celibate. Oh my gosh, how could we do that? <laughs> and it's like, okay, well, let's think. If you try to force people <laughs> to think the way you do way fewer are going to be likely to come to that conclusion because this is again basic human psychology the more you push things on people the greater of a prison it becomes for them the more likely they are to reject it and so you know if if the goal is to make celibacy life giving if the goal um is to have more queer people choose celibacy, then you got to kind of step back and take the pressure off a little bit and recognize that this is not a salvation issue. And um, this is not an issue that God rejects people over. And so this should not be an issue that Christian communities reject people over. And that is in and of itself is really radical because there is this assumption that when you sin sexually um, and sexual sin is typically defined as anything that is outside of your own beliefs on sexual ethics, (laughs) that's how people see sexual sin. (laughs) Um, So, you know, there's this idea that if you are a sexual sinner, then you're not a real Christian Mm-hmm. Um, and well, I mean, that's just not true. Um, we all sin in various different ways. And the, the truth is, is that all of us understand the boundaries of sin differently. All of us are growing in our understanding of scripture, growing in our understand understanding of, of God's expectations upon us. And who we are today is not the same person we were 20 years ago. And in fact, the person we were 20 years ago probably embarrasses us. Um, And so, you know, we have to, again, the grace we give for ourselves, we have to be willing to give it to others um, and recognize that, you know, the Christian life is not this life that is defined by lines and boundaries. Um, It is defined by growth, by a walk. It's a journey with Christ uh it's not this you know straight jacket uh falling in line it's um it's a process and that process has to be embraced so yeah that's that's the first thing that I would say so
0: you're saying that if 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 your church's goal is to allow a safe space for celibate people don't kick out uh uh, two women who are married (laughs) (laughs) yeah like you know it's be be part of their lives too
2: yeah let them be part of the community too
0: yeah and and even if even if you're even if your church is more uh, open to the idea of same-sex marriage you need to still provide that on the other side provide that safe space for people who want to remain celibate based on their ethics
2: exactly on both sides either way yeah And, you know, speaking to the other side, um, you know, I have spoken to friends who are celibate who do sometimes feel this pressure from progressive communities to, Mm -hmm. you know, be in a relationship, get married, um, and do feel a kind of shame around being celibate. Mm. Um, And, yeah, that principle goes for both sides. You know, both need to be accepted as choices that queer people can come to um, as a result of genuine and authentic searching of god's word um, and coming to their own conclusions about what the bible is saying and recognizing that this is part of the christian walk and giving space for that
1: wow that's very good advice it makes me think of the, I, I tried to think like, why, why is this so difficult? Because it, I I do like, I think the intuitive thing is like, yes, we absolutely are going to make this the price of admission, even though theologically or from scripture, we, under, we understand that sanctification comes from walking with Jesus. It's not the, the first step, right? You have to, you have to be, you know, the, messy version of you that doesn't know Jesus first and you walk with Jesus and then, you know, Jesus is going to call you to be who you need to be. We know that um theoretically. And and we apply it in some situations. And we also know that like Paul rejects this living to the flesh, which is the sin, guilt, shame cycle mm-hmm. of just yep. trying to be good so that we can walk with Jesus. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think ultimately what it comes to is this is we are afraid to be seen as accepting of sin, which kind of betrays the fact that we don't see ourselves as sinners. Mm
2: -hmm. Yes. Like, wait a minute.
1: You're going to, you're going to, people are going to think that we let sinners go here. It's like, what, who do you think goes there? Who's in your church? If it's not full (laughs) of like a hundred percent, a bunch of sinners, you're inflating, you you think you are better. You you think that you, you did it. And then Jesus was like, I'm so glad you're on my team instead of (laughs) like, I'm a sinner in in need of grace and I I can't do it on myself. Peter had to learn how to recognize the spirit and people that he thought he was literally supposed to reject because of Leviticus. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And you talk about a difficult thing that we need to grapple with is like, people are going to have their convictions about, what is a, a a godly christian jesus type sexual e- ethic and that's there's that's something worth exploring and it's something you can be convicted of so how do we develop the muscle to stand by our convictions and allow space for this the spirit working in others who mm-hmm. are coming to completely different conclusions
0: yeah yeah 100%
1: Thank you so much for the book. Thank you for just the the grace and empathy that you have for the people who are afraid to read this kind of book, or who are you know you know what yes. I mean. Um, we need we as dominant culture people, whoever that that means, we need <laughs> we need this kind of voice constantly, mm-hmm. and I I pray that people are open to this kind of thing. I pray that when I'm 80 that whoever's telling me something that I can't believe that they're going to say um I hope that I'm open to that then as yeah. well um
0: yeah and I'll say again thanks for the way that you approach the whole thing as very uh very caring and very uh warm-hearted toward the people who are struggling with with this idea in general um yeah. because so many people th- that I know and it was it was me like a couple years ago <laughs> Mm-hmm. A lot, a lot of changes, but it's it's hard, It is scary to open up a book about LGBTQ uh, issues in Christianity because, like you said, like this may be taking me places I don't want to go. Mm-hmm. And so true. I like I, I, so. Thank you for for approaching it that way, and sh- so showing how we can be more loving to people that. Oh, by the way, they happen to be you know different sexual Mm -hmm. orientation you know but you still love them so yeah thank you for that
2: yeah well I appreciate that so thank you for your kind words and I am hopeful that the book can open hearts and and minds and hopefully you know start some much needed conversations in church communities
1: yep I, yeah. Again, I appreciate it so much. I hope you get to go back to being a traveling nun soon. Is that?
0: <laughs> yeah. Were uh, you actually a nun? <laughs> no,
2: I was not. <laughs> 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 um, the The name comes from uh, feeling like a lot of my uh, callings in life are, you know, have a lot of parallels to the monastic life, but. Mm. Um never i'm nevertheless not in the monastic life but i mean maybe you could say that i am i don't know like (laughs) protestantism doesn't really allow for an outlet for that um and then the traveling part comes from just feeling like i'm in a journey and walking through this one day at a time kind of thing so yeah. No, oh, good. That,
1: that's a thing that COVID can't put <laughs> to a stop. Still on a journey, even if you <laughs> can't go to Puerto Rico.
2: Yes.
0: But it only takes a whisper. Hey, thanks for listening. We hope you got something out of the episode today. Check the show notes in your podcast app for all the links and references that were made, or you can find it all at followingthefire.com. If you'd like to support the show, please go to patreon.com. Slash following the fire to become a patron. And of course, we'd love it if you rate the podcast and share it with others.
1: See you later. With what you're worth.